we're all in this together. Me and Seeds. Uh. <laughs> seeds of our ancestral crops here in the southwest it really belongs where it grew it evolved into being they also used to our sounds <laughs> our songs our prayers our love for them they're our relatives and so they matter. You know, my understanding of indigenous lifestyles in that you become very aware of not disturbing the environment you're in in a way that it will take care of you back. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod. I'm your host and pollinator, Melissa Nelson. I'm excited to introduce you to a new special podcast series and partnership as part of our Native Seed Pod Season 4, Knowledge Symbiosis. Can traditional ecological knowledge and biomimicry harmonize? This special series is co-produced in partnership with the Biomimicry Center at Arizona State University, co-directed by Sara El-Sayed and the Learning from Nature podcast. This Knowledge Symbiosis series is co-produced and co-broadcast with Learning from Nature, the Biomimicry podcast with Lily Ehrman. You can listen to Learning from Nature and the Native Seed Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much, Roxanne Swensel and Anne Laforti, for being with us for this conversation at the interface between Indigenous knowledge systems, Native science, and biomimicry, delving into a topic that is dear to my heart, which is food and food systems. So before we dive into these topics, I'd like each of you to introduce yourself and, and your work in whichever way you'd like to introduce yourself. <laughs> okay. Thank you for having me on this podcast today, and um, I look forward to our conversation. My name is Roxanne Swensel. I'm from Santa Clara Pueblo in northern New Mexico. Uh, I am a tribal member here and live here on the reservation. I have uh, been a farmer, a builder, a sculptor, a um, mechanic, <laughs> a a do-aller, but I am very focused on um, all the skills that it takes to be a more sustainable uh, person in this world. And coming from a tribal community, I am aware of how to do that in a more traditional cultural context. And so that's where I'm coming from. I started a nonprofit institute in 1989 called Flowering Tree Permaculture Institute. And we work with sustainable permaculture design methods, but coming from an indigenous perspective. Thank you. And where can we find your art, Roxanne? <laughs> and you can find my art here and there, but I do have a gallery 
called the Roxanne Swensel Tower Gallery in Powaki, New Mexico. If you look up my name, you'll probably find it. Yeah, beautiful sculptures. Anne, tell us about yourself. So my name is Anne Laforty, and I live in Pasadena, California. And I came to this work. A friend of mine asked me to help her out with a nonprofit that she was starting. It was an urban agriculture project. And I was a foodie. And I was like, okay, cool, let's do it. And so she did a lot of the farming and the growing, but we got to participate in some activities around pickling and fermentation, extending the harvest. And I got really interested in nutrient density of food. And I wanted to know how do we get nutrient density into food. And I started picking up lots of permaculture books and listening to all the podcasts and doing all the things to learn as much as I could. And in that process, I found out that there's microbes in the soil that are actually cycling nutrients, which is how our food gets that nutrient density. And from there on, it was a a passion journey, maybe. I I was living in Chicago at the time, but I was from California, and I decided that I needed to move to California to help heal the soils of California. And so from there, I ended up getting a master's degree in biomimicry and weaving together my love of soil and um, these biomimicry ideas. And um, along the way, I met Sara, which is wonderful. Um, And now I actually, uh, for the last year or so, I've been working for Biomimicry 3.8, which is a leading biomimicry consulting company. I specifically focus on built environment, biomimicry application, and yeah, that's me. Thanks, Anne. That's great. So given that What brings us together is nature. I'm wondering if each of you can share with us what maybe is your favorite organism or ecosystem or just place that resonates with you. I think that just, I would have to say that I'm partial to my yard just because I have grown it from scratch of sorts. It was a driveway uh, when I came to live here and all there was was sand And within the last 35 to, yeah, about 35 years, I grew a small food forest here around my house. And just watching it through the years has been such a learning experience and a relationship I've built with it, implementing what I put in to start with and then watching it evolve has been a love story. (laughs) And I have to say that's been the most exciting ecosystem that I've <laughs> I've been around. As someone who has visited this place, it's just incredible how you're literally moving from, you know, a desert and you're going into this completely different ecosystem. It's wild. It's just heavenly. The microclimates, the diversity, all the critters and organisms, and then your own grandkids running around feeling so free. Thank you, Sarah. Yes, it's been a a working process continuously. (laughs) But yes, it's a little forest. uh, We laugh, the kids laugh because they look on Google Maps and they can look down at the pictures, the images they take of the landscape. And we can always find my spot because it's this green spot in the middle of the desert. Yes, it's actually one of the hardest places to grow because it's the high desert. So not only do we have lack of water, 
We have very hot temperatures, very cold temperatures, and very short growing season. So all of them, <laughs> that's, it's not the easiest place to grow in. But there's ways. <laughs> there's ways. Right. <laughs> You. That's really beautiful. Well, what about you, Anne? What is your favorite organism or ecosystem? Where do you flock to? I flock to the soil. It's not anywhere specific geography-wise, but I just love thinking about the different relationships in the soil. Specifically, I'm a big fan of fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi is just the coolest. And the ways that it is, you know, functionally supporting its community is pretty fantastic. So it's a philosophy too, right? The soil is foundational and the microbes in the soil have these relationships that are like a soap opera, right? Everybody is connected to everybody else in some way or another. And it's, it's very beautiful and drama filled and really interesting because, you know, they say we know more about space than we know about what's under our feet. And so it's sort of, you know, the next frontier of better understanding those community dynamics. I love that. Thanks, Anne. Uh, you know, one of my happiest and saddest moments at the same time were I come from Cairo, Egypt, and they were drilling for a new subway that they're building. So I got a chance to see maybe three, four feet down the infrastructure that they were dredging. And you can see this black, lush soil that used to surround the Nile River that was generations of farmers that had been stewarding this land using the inundation that would come, the classical river that would flood and inundate and new silt would come through. And there's like thick layer of soil that had been stewarded and built and it was so black. And the thing is like Egypt is in the middle of a desert too, but this is exactly what farmers had done. And yet it was all built on top with the cement and concrete. And so it was like such a beautiful moment to be able to see what my ancestors had done, but also such a heart-wrenching moment to see what we've chosen to prioritize. We'll start diving in a little bit. So if you can introduce to the listeners what to you means indigenous knowledge or TEK, and this is to you, Roxanne, and what you might know about biomimicry. And if it's nothing at all, that's fine also. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I actually have not heard the word biomimicry until recently. I had to go look it up. And then I believe you asked about like, how does that connect with indigenous knowledge I was caught by, you know, permaculture way back in the 90s, the 80s, actually, because it rang true with what I was taught as an indigenous person. 
in how to treat the land around us, to how to behave in our environments in better ways. It feels almost crazy not to <laughs> at this point. It's like common sense. It's like you don't go kill the hand that feeds you. <laughs> you take care of it. You know, if the land is taking care of you, you make sure you don't destroy it. And so, you know, it felt like biomimicry and permaculture thinking was to, you know, make conscious a very obvious thing if we want to continue life to take care of our environment. If you're defining to someone who's a non-native, what do you think indigenous knowledge means? What does that knowledge mean to you and how did you acquire it? I guess I think of indigenous knowledge is a land-based thinking, a land-based way of being where you're not separate from your environment. You belong to place. And so to me, that is what I think of when I think of indigenous knowledge is that you are remembering or you're aware of your connection to place. Thank you. And? Oh, I feel like that concept of the genius of place is so heavily influencing my perspective of biomimicry. You know, life creates conditions conducive to life. And how can we mimic those patterns to create those life-supporting conditions, right? It's very similar to regenerative design, right? And also when you say the word remember, if we break apart that word remember, we again member ourselves to who we are and to nature. What does it mean to be a member of this ecosystem? And how can we design our human solutions within that idea of, hey, we're all here together. <laughs> it's not just for humans. And so how can we be better neighbors to our human and non-human communities? Wow, both great. From your worldview, what is nature and what's our relationship towards that as humans? <laughs> you go first, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, uh, to me, I, I live a very urban life, but nature is, it, it's many things. We are all connected. We are really all just one, like our planet is one large superorganism, really, going about it, its ways and systems. But to me also, I think very metaphorically, and so nature is my teacher, my mentor, and so I like to think about how all the systems work and how I can incorporate them in my day-to-day, -day, whether that's thinking about like, what might the mycelial way mean, right? If we want to learn lessons from fungi, what would that look like in my daily life? Like decisions that I make about my career path or how I interact with my local community. My uh, friend Kumu said, when I talked to her about microbes and she's like, oh yeah, water spirits. And I was like, hmm water spirits, tell me more. She's like, well, water spirits. So microbes, they need water to survive, to live, to thrive, just like us. And they often live in water and they live in bodies of water. We are bodies of water. And so we have, not only are microbes in the soil, 
but they're in us, on us, with us. And they're one of the one of the strongest things, maybe besides our DNA, that has been passed down generation to generation that we have with us at all times. And so I like to really think introspectively <laughs> about nature as like the life on me and in me and of me, right? I love that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I like that too. Thank you, Anne. What do I think nature is? When you asked that, I went, well, that's the truth (laughs) versus (laughs) non-truth. I went that way. And I thought it's the natural place we, when we're in our right place or when we are truly ourselves, we are in our natural setting, our natural way of being. And so the natural environment around us does not pretend, you know, a peach never pretends to be a pear. You know, a cherry tree never pretends to be a cactus. They are what they are. People are the only ones that get confused here. (laughs) We try to be things we're not. And so we end up making messes. I think nature is finding our natural place within ourselves and the world around us in nature, in the natural world. And I like what you were saying, Anne, about the microbes and all of the fungi and the organisms that we don't necessarily see every day. They're connecting us and sending messages and communicating. And if we're not in our right place or we're not being true to ourselves, I wonder what message that is sending versus when we are in our right place, what message do we send in that place? So I I guess I go that direction with that question is humans for some reason (laughs) need to ask that question. (laughs) No other species would have to. (laughs) For sure. Well, and I think just going off of that, There's a lot um, of things that I think about in biomimicry around signals and signals that we are able to hear and then also to give and whether or not we're tuned to hear them matters, right? If you have a radio that's on the wrong station, you're not going to hear that song. And so I think personally, I'm very inspired by iTech in the way of trying to be more observant and trying to have deeper listening skills to nature and to elders and wisdom holders around ways of being that I may not be picking up signals around because of the way that I grew up in urban environment and my culture. Yeah, all of us at this point. But I do think that we need to learn to listen again so that we can proceed in the best way possible. And if we're too busy playing video games or we're doing whatever, we tend to disconnect ourselves from our natural environment. We're not remembering. (laughs) We're not connecting the dots anymore. We're fragmenting. We're not becoming a beautiful basket. We're becoming pieces broken. So in that spirit of a beautiful basket, and since both of you are working in the space of food, I'm wondering what a sustainable or regenerative food system means or looks like to you and the communities that you represent. 
I could start. Oof. It's a big, it's a big question for sure. Uh, I, I prefer regenerative. I heard the other day someone say, if someone asked you about your relationship with your significant other, would you want them to say, yeah, it's sustainable? <laughs> or would you want them to say that it's regenerative, right? That you love them more each day. And so I like to think about it that way of like, how can we do activities that are healing at the same time that they are generating food. And so I'm very interested in the regenerative agriculture movement, which I know has a lot of basis from iTech. And that idea that whatever we're doing, we need to consider what is the soil doing naturally and how might we support it? So Janine Benyus says, we have to learn to help the helpers. We need to support them in ways so that they can do their best work. And that's what I see in regenerative agriculture with keeping the soil covered and keeping living roots in the ground. There's lots of layers to it. It goes out to food justice and making sure that we find opportunities to heal communities that have food deserts. And basically just... I feel like a regenerative food system would include every single layer between that. So healing rural communities that have been basically decimated by our our current agriculture practices and policies, unfortunately. It's a combination of a lot of things. There's a lot of a push right now for fully vegetarian-only options. And I think that might be missing a piece around considering cultural norms. And we're not all the same. We like different foods. And so when we're pushing for just vegetarian foods, we're maybe missing something. And I think also a lot of times with regenerative agriculture, if we have grazing organisms, grazing animals, ruminants on the land, many times they're on land that can't necessarily grow food. And so how can we leverage those animals who need to eat and can go on more rocky terrain to heal those lands that may have been degraded over time in other ways? Can you just define to the audience what you mean when you say regenerative agriculture? Agriculture that has the built-in mechanism of healing the land and healing the animals and healing the people all the way up the chain. Um, So ideally, if we are eating animals for meat, that they have uh, a really good life and just one bad day. And that when we're doing the process of raising those animals, that they are giving back to the land as well and helping to heal the soil. Because like you think about cows, like they have these rumens with the different microorganisms in there. Those microorganisms come from the soil. And they go back to the soil. And that is very tightly cycled with the soil. Their saliva triggers growth in grass. They evolve together with the grasses. And so to me, that's regenerative agriculture is to grow food, produce grains, fruits, vegetables, meat, dairy, in ways that actually help heal the soil, heal the land. It's not just a focus on exactly what we're doing on the land, but how do those layers fold out to help support healing communities as well? Thank you, that's really beautiful.
The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. I use sustainable a lot, but I like the word regenerative better because I don't think it can be sustainable unless it's regenerative, unless it's um, all working well together, all of it. So, again, I want to go back to this idea of being in a natural right place concept where all the parts are working well together. I think that's where I go to when you're thinking about regenerative or a sustainable system or a system that is blooming at its highest potential. <laughs> I think it has to do with diversity. And I don't know if there's any system that is at its fullest potential because I keep thinking life evolves, you know, and it's trying to become more and more diverse and more and more intricate and more and more possibilities. And that's so cool. If you think of it in the opposite terms, when they come in with, you know, monocropping or industrial farming methods, they actually take away diversity. They take away the microbes. They take away the fungi. They take away all the other plants and birds and insects and everything else that could be there. And they, you know, grow one crop and they spray it with chemicals. And that's a very, very sad basket. (laughs) It has one strand to its structure. But then even if you do two crops, then you got two strands for your basket. What if you left some rows where you just let the weeds grow? Then you have maybe 10 more strands to your basket. Then you add some butterflies, you add some insects, you add some birds, and you've got 50 more strands to your basket. Now you add some fungi and microbes in the soil and you let them heal and stuff. And now you've got a million more strands to your basket. And, you know, you keep adding and your basket becomes more and more intricate and beautiful and diverse and strong because the more strands you have to that basket, the stronger that basket's going to be. So if something comes along and disturbs it, it's not going to fall apart so easily. It's going to be sustainable. (laughs) It's going to last. So that's the trick. So that's what we're aiming for. Roxanne, can you try and paint a picture to our viewers of what that looks like in your reality, on on your farm and on your land? (laughs) Well, I started with a very depleted piece of ground that my grandmother gave me to make a home on. And it was literally the driveway to my brother's house. (laughs) So it was pounded down, sandy, hard-packed, ground with no plants anywhere. A lot of ants though, the ants were doing okay. And I started building me a place, but I was also getting into the concepts of permaculture and making a sustainable or a regenerative food forest around my 
my home. So of course I'm starting with this driveway. So what do you do? <laughs> you we you know I didn't have you know a lot of money. I don't have big equipment. I don't have much. So I went and I got a rock, and I we carried this rock. It was you know about two foot rock, so it was fair, fairly good sized rock. And we put that rock down, <laughs> and immediately now you created something. In nothingness. Yes, there was some tiny little ants here and there, but not much. My basket was very weak. You couldn't live off of that driveway, and nothing else could live out there except an ant. So we put a rock, and now we have the possibility of microclimates. Now you have a hot side of the rock, a cold side of the rock. A east side, a west side. You've got all kinds of things going on now around this rock because when it does rain, <laughs> that water can run off that rock and go around the sides and go underneath it and is now being protected from evaporation underneath the rock. So under this rock is wetter than outside the rock. And so then we could go get a plant and we actually planted on the north side of this rock to start with. And on this north side of the rock, it's cooler so it wouldn't get dried out as much. It could reach the moisture underneath the rock. And the rock is making the climate more stable. So in the daytime, it soaked up the sun's heat. And in the nighttime, it radiated that heat. So it stabilized the temperature. And uh, so it kept that plant more comfortable. So that plant we planted had more of a chance to grow given that we gave it a rock mama to help it. So basically that's how it started. We start making these little microclimates all over the place that then start collecting life. Once you get a plant growing, you know that you're going to be asking insects to come over. You're asking for a bird to land on it. You're asking for a little bug to crawl over under its shade. You're asking for all kinds of things to start happening. You put two plants out there, now you're talking about a whole relationship that's going on underneath the ground. And like Anne described so wonderfully, you start to get a communication going on underneath the ground between these two plants. They're the microbes under there, the fungi, the, all of that start to have a place to be and more life starts to happen. And you start to put more little places for plants to be planted, more microclimates to be planted, and you start to make this web of life emerge until eventually, 30, 40 years later, you literally can have a forest in what was once a desert driveway. And that's all starting at this very small level of where does life start anyway? So we've gone from rock to forest on your evolutionary journey, huh? I love that. <laughs> it's so, such a beautiful way of describing it. I, I never thought of a rock in that way. I love it. <laughs> well, so I know both of you have two special worlds that you've been working in. And so I, I, I would like to hear more and you speaking about what soil means to you and maybe how we th should be thinking about soil. And then 
Roxanne, uh, I know you've been working a lot with seeds, so I'm wondering if you can also speak to us about what seeds mean to you and how we should be thinking about them. So I'll, I'll leave it to Anne first to start. Sure. So one of the things that I found, I actually went to a cafe chat that a friend invited me to, and it was a conversation about climate change. And everyone there was very interested in sustainability, but also felt very apathetic because they felt like there was nothing they could do, that there was nothing on their scale that they could impact. And I said, well, (laughs) with an attitude like that, of course, right? (laughs) So that's how I feel about the bigger picture too, is that soil is something that everyone can impact. I live in an apartment, but I've found a way to connect with a local community garden. There's parks that you can go and sit on the decision-making calls and say, hey, we need to consider the soil in this decision. How are we healing the soil versus letting it be sprayed with chemicals? Or if we're using just sod across the grass, is there ways we can incorporate other organisms into this micro ecosystem. Similar to your your basket with a few strands here and there building up the other strands so that you have this fuller basket, there's this idea of, of pixelated healing that if I do what I can where I can and you do what you can where you can, eventually we can connect all of these different soil healers around the world to literally physically enable these microbes and fungi to connect underground and spread. And so for me, oftentimes I think of people in urban environments because that's where I live. And I think that a lot of times we think there's nothing we can do. And I say, well, no. <laughs> if if that's what you've decided, then maybe there is nothing that you can do, but everyone can do something. And even if that is just contributing food scraps to your local composting garden or planting a food garden or just trying to heal the soil in your yard, planting more native trees and plants, incorporating the local microbiome. And so if you need compost for your garden, I challenge you to make the compost and use the compost that's available locally without driving down to the garden store and getting what might be purchased there. That's a lot of how I feel about this is, uh, I said this the other day, but we have this opportunity to be intentional ecosystem engineers. Either way, we are impacting our ecosystem. We are engineering our ecosystems as humans. And so we can be more like a beaver who is doing this intentional engineering, which creates habitats for many other organisms and supports healing of a place. Or we can be more like a squirrel who stores these acorns for later, forgets about one, and then, oops, here's a little sapling of an oak, right? And so how can we be more like that beaver? How can we be more intentional about the healing that we need to do so that we can be better humans to our neighbors that are not humans, (laughs) to the environment? Wow. Yeah, soil is like right under us, right? So it it should be something that we can impact directly. Yeah. Thank you for that, Anne. Roxanne, what about you and seeds? Me and seeds. Uh, (laughs) Well, I've been saving uh, ancestral crop seeds mostly since the 80s and have created three little seed banks now that are for 
to keep these seeds safe as they could be in order to get them back out into the community. These seeds have been uh, seeds of our ancestral crops here in the Southwest. And now the seed bank has grown. So, you know, other tribes have given me seeds to, to hold also. But mostly, again, um, place-based seed saving is important in the discussion just because someone may give me seed from, you know, Canada. That seed is precious, but it should be grown in Canada. <laughs> and, you know, I could grow it out here and eventually get it to adapt to this climate here, but it really belongs where it grew and evolved into being. And that's my belief with seed saving is that these seeds are very adapted to where they evolved. So our corns, for instance, here in the village are very drought tolerant corns that are very used to our kind of soils, our kind of season and water levels. And I, you know, I take it as far as they are also used to our sounds, <laughs> our songs, our prayers, our love for them. They're our relatives. And so they matter and to lose them would be very sad. And, you know, we've lost a whole lot already of crops, but the crops I do keep growing. I share with the communities that are interested in growing them out. I am very much involved with trying to get not just these crops regrown to save the seed and the genetic code of them, but also to bring them back into our lifestyle. So we're eating them again. So we're, so they're family again. They're not <laughs> ancient history. <laughs> and we've done a lot of uh, work on studying how eating our traditional crops is very good for us health-wise. And not just physically health-wise, but um, spiritually uh, health-wise. There's something about being in connection to your food and food that has been ancient with your culture that that does something to you. And but I have to say that you were saying and that you know you could people could get involved in city parks or the neighborhood gardens or making your own compost. And I think that's so important. Even getting a little flower pot and growing something you can eat in that on your windowsill or your little patio, getting a tomato to grow all the way to getting a tomato, a ripe tomato, and then bringing that tomato in. And if it's a really good tasting tomato, you save those seeds and then you can plant another tomato and it becomes your tomato plant that you're going to start a relationship with. And there's nothing better than some plant that you grew from scratch and you bring it in and, and you cook it up or whatever. And you love that sandwich or that tomato or that stir fry or that onion or whatever it is that you grew from scratch. There is something that happens to you and that food that can't happen if you bought it from the grocery store. It just can't. There's something we don't even have a language for it in English. There's 
there's a relationship, there's a nurturing that goes beyond just eating healthy food. Because you can go to Whole Foods and buy organic whatevers, and they might have been grown pretty good, who knows, you know. But that plant didn't know you. (laughs) It didn't hear your voice in the morning while you're on the phone to your mom. (laughs) It didn't hear you getting all excited that it was ripening and it's almost ready. There's something that happens on a spiritual level that, that I think we really need to take into account. That's medicine. When they say food is medicine, it's not just the nutrients in it. It's the whole connection. It's all of the parts that make us related to that tomato, <laughs> that corn, that squash, that pineapple, <laughs> wherever you're from. <laughs> So seed saving for me has been that journey, is trying to continue that relationship with crops of my ancestors. And I'm so honored to get to be the caretaker of them in this lifetime. Beautiful. So we've talked a lot about these synergies that we're hearing, right? The being adapted to place and building these relationships and cultivating cooperative relations between each other. There's a lot of synergies in these worlds of biomimicry, permaculture, indigenous knowledge. I'm wondering from your experience if you think there are maybe some frictions, some things that that we aren't seeing eye to eye that maybe we should be thinking about. So, for example, biomimicry as a field is often thought of in the media as being very technology-focused, very utilitarian. And sometimes indigenous knowledge is seen as either maybe too vague sometimes, or maybe too specific or romanticized, whether you see these two worlds as as having certain frictions that we should be thinking about as we're trying to expand this world. I think that there's definitely that feeling. When I mention biomimicry to people and they've heard of it, they think of people in lab coats doing innovation in a lab and I think that there's a lot of space there to say, yeah, but that's not how all biomimicry happens. In the same way that I imagine in iTech, there's vast differences between different cultures, technology, ecological technologies. I I think there's a lot of different ways to, to practice biomimicry. And I hope that there's more of it that is aimed towards ecological restoration and support of creating conditions conducive to life. But I think that there's also probably people thinking that they're doing biomimicry, but they're not necessarily, I probably wouldn't label it as biomimicry. For instance, like using 
the shape of a penguin to design a torpedo or a weapon of war would not be biomimicry, right? When I think about the the biomimicry that I practice, of course, it has a lot of respect for the organisms that we study, and it requires to be, you know, to have gratitude for those organisms. But I think that oftentimes we forget the people involved in that life. These organisms have been around for millions of years. There's people that have been on this land for hundreds of thousands of years, right? And so how can we make sure that we are taking the wisdom from all around and not just from sort of Western science perspective? We need to be better listeners to all of it. And then also when we do learn from an organism or a person, we need to be very clear and honor that wisdom in a way that isn't just saying, oh, well, I created this, so it's mine, right? And so where's the wisdom coming from? And I think oftentimes that's missing sometimes in biomimicry, as far as honoring the eye tech and the the elders that have provided wisdom. It oftentimes will be alongside Western science. But I think that friction that you're talking about is more prevalent when we compare the two. I don't necessarily think we need to compare the two of um, indigenous wisdom versus Western science, but that they can go, go alongside each other. There's a piece of Western science, at least in the soil, that's very frustrating, right? Because science, we must narrow down the variables to just what we can control so that we're very sure of the outcomes when we build theories about things. And when we knock out all of the variables, are we really studying the real nature of life? That's not really how organisms work. And so that's something that I struggle with personally is like, how can we as a science-focused group of biomimics, encourage a wider holistic view of nature and look to, there's heroes, of course, for us, Robin Wall Kimmerer and other indigenous scientists who are able to weave these ideas together. And so how can we really listen more closely to the wisdom of nature, of the organisms, of indigenous elders? Yeah, and I ask this question all the time, you know, like I interface with indigenous students that are struggling in the academic space where they might be asked to dissect an organism that has a spiritual meaning in their culture and they're inside Western science and are asked to do these different things. And yet at the end of the day, supposedly it's for the sake of this organism that we're doing this, that we're dissecting, learning about it. And so there is a tension there when we come from different worldviews. What does it look like to actually learn and yet respect at the same time? So the question relates to frictions that you might be seeing in how people perceive indigenous knowledge. One of the classical things is that maybe it's romanticized Well, I I love the way Anne was describing it. I agree with a lot of what you had said. From my own experience, I get frustrated when things that you intuitively know are not accepted unless they're scientifically proven. (laughs) And uh, sometimes it's frustrating. It's, well, (laughs) we knew that. It's in our gut. You know, it's in... 
the way you know something's right or not right. But the whole scientific world tends to only want to believe in things if they can prove it in a Petri dish or whatever that experiment they're doing. Anne was saying so eloquently, there's limits to that. You have to make it very simplified in order to have the science experiment work. (laughs) So it's just one small piece of the picture. And oftentimes we put too much power on that system to decide things. And I think for Indigenous-based people, it tends to be frustrating when you're coming from a culture that you already know that, you know, the, the plants feel things or will react in good ways or bad ways to certain things. You already know that because it's nature. And if you're connected to your natural state, your right place, you of course know that's not the way you should be treating the land. You don't need to get a lawyer to do that and get scientists to whatever. You just know you don't do that. You, it's, it's not the way we take care of each other. But on the other side, there are some ways that it's really kind of fun. When I hear things in quantum physics, for instance, that describe things that they can't quite explain, but they're seeing, they're finding these amazing incidences where they affect something on one side of the earth and it affects the other side of the earth at the same exact time. And it's like, yes, yes, eventually science will catch up. It's going to catch up. But one of the one of the cool things we did when we were studying the health benefits of eating our traditional foods is we went all the volunteer group to prove that this food was doing good for us because we thought we needed to have many ways to to show what it was doing. We went to see a doctor who did blood tests on us and weighed us and took live blood cell tests that we could look under microscope at and see what our red blood cells were doing. And oh my gosh, I have to say it was so exciting (laughs) because um, watching your own blood cells move around under a microscope and seeing how they were interrelating to each other or not brought tears to my eyes because something you feel is happening intuitively, but then you see it in a Petri dish in a microscope, was just like, oh my God, they are in trouble. They are unhappy (laughs) or whatever was going on there. And then after eating our traditional foods for three months, we got to look at our red blood cells under the microscope and it was phenomenally different. It was so incredible. And so, you know, things like that are fun, but as a person that believes that eventually we will believe in ourselves and our intuition well enough that we don't need that kind of proof, that we will know how to walk in the right way on this planet, I think that's the evolution, that we are hopefully going to become more, we will become truly biomimicry in our own selves so that we're not uh, needing scientific proof like that, but we know innately. 
And Roxanne, what you were talking about earlier with the group of people doing that health experiment, so to speak, was the Pueblo food experience, right? When you just went off on a pre-contact diet that your ancestors would have eaten and all of you had like health benefits change over the course of just three months, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. And we proved it helps us <laughs> even scientifically. <laughs> yeah. And that actually circles back to Anne, something you were talking about earlier, which is meat, because meat was part of this, right? But you were looking at, you were using only wild game, right? Wild animals that you would have hunted, for example. Is that correct? Yes, the concept it was that as people of this place, just like the seeds in my seed bank, we are adapted to our food, our location. And as Pueblo people, we were lucky enough to not have been taken from our homelands and put somewhere else. We're actually still in our homelands. And so that makes us a perfect people to have done this experiment because we are still in our homeland and we still have many of our traditions and a lot of our crops that we've evolved with over thousands of years. And so to test ourselves on eating our original diet was perfect. But we haven't been eating that well and our health has suffered greatly. Native people in the Americas have the worst disease problems, health problems of any race there is. And so we really need to figure ourselves out. And so this was an attempt to try to help us figure out one way to deal with this. And as a seed saver, I realized that these crops are very adapted to a location and they do the best where they are evolved from. And so putting us as human seeds back into the environment, meaning the food systems that we evolved with, might also show that we do better. And we did. It, it proved without a doubt that eating our original foods was really good for us. <laughs> and that's the food we need to be eating if we want to be healthy. Everybody is indigenous to somewhere on this planet. We just have to find out where that is and what foods were your people eating at the time that they were stabilized in that environment. And stabilized means that they were staying put in that environment for 20 generations or more. And that environment where your genetic code was adapted to that location, um, if you can find what those plants and animals were in that area, that's your food base. That's the place you fit. <laughs> it's the natural fit, the right place. So that's all we were doing is trying to find our right fit to food again. And we really did hit the nail on the head with it. So that's good. Yeah, it's a great project. So final question to you both. Are there any projects you're working on right now that give you hope or joy that you want to share with the audience? I'll let you go first, Roxanne. I don't have any one particular project. I feel like I'm seeing everything as being pieces of, if we want to go back to the basket image again, of having the diversity and all of 
the things it needs to create as rich a system as I can possibly create. That's is my goal. And so I think I probably, you know, if I have a project I'm working on, it is continuously that project. And so it's continuously evolving. And I'm learning so much. And I, I actually really am excited about what you're involved with, Anne, because I'm really learning how to do no-till farming <laughs> because of the soil structure and wanting to preserve and nurture those soil structures to create healthier gardens in my farm. And so that's a whole world that I'm like really focused on myself right now. So I'm, I'm excited about what you're doing, actually. Awesome. It's interesting because like, I don't, I, I think similar to your answer, like I don't necessarily have one project that I'm working on. I think that part of my just work is trying to connect people with understanding and information. So I like to think about the fact that there's bacteria that create these enzymatic glues and stick themselves to soil particles to break open and and pull out the nutrients to provide them for the plants. And I feel like that's you, that's me. We are we're using the enzymes to unlock that information that's locked up either behind a paywall <laughs> or the scientific jargon or communities that have lost their connection to nature, right? And so how can we unlock that and help pass those nutrients, that beautiful information and guidance to anybody who's interested in learning more to build up those networks and so that people aren't just connected to me, but they're connected to each other in this beautiful work. Unlocking the potentials of enzymes. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, to end, I would say that what we are working on here at ASU is really trying to weave these different worlds together. And so this, thank you for being part of this conversation. And the next big thing we're going to be working on is we're actually holding a conference in the spring where we're hoping to bring in local academics and educators in the spring in the space of indigenous education to try and bring more indigenous students into the space of biomimicry as a potential pathway into more science and technology and uh, fields in general. And so I'm excited about this potential. And so some of this, these conversations will be featured at this conference. So we thank you for your time and your wisdom. And with that, if you have any final words, I'd just like to thank you, but you can say a few words if you'd like to end this. I just want to say I'm so honored to be part of this conversation and it's really exciting. You're, the conference that you're having, I heard about it and I was like, oh my gosh, that is, that's exactly what we need. So I'm looking forward to hearing all about that. Great. Yes. And I also want to say thank you for this conversation today and for all that you're doing in getting information, good information out to the people and blessings to you all.
This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Institute of Humanities Research at Arizona State University, the School of Sustainability at ASU, the Biomimicry Center at ASU, the Cultural Conservancy Native Seed Pod, Global Futures, Indigenous Knowledge's Focal Area at ASU, the School for Complex Adaptive Systems at ASU, Biomimicry 3.8, the Learning from Nature podcast. And this podcast was hosted, written, and directed by Sara El Said, Lily Ehrman, and myself, Melissa K. Nelson of Anishinaabe and Metis Heritage. And this podcast would not have been possible without the amazing teamwork of the Cultural Conservancy's Native Seed Pod. We thank the producers, Mateo Inojosa, Mestizo Quechua, and Sarah Moncada, Yaki. We thank the co-producer, Raven Marshall, Dakota Lakota. Audio engineer, music and soundscaping provided by Colin Farish, and partnership coordination by Alexis Stanley of the Diné, Akama, and Honduran peoples. Thanks also, for they all contribute to these conversations, this work, and our lives. To the soil, microorganisms, food forests, seeds, ocean coral, redwood trees, rocks, rivers, birds, stars, people, places, and all of our kin. Chimigwitch, we thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Shukran. Thank you.